plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, hello, Power Partners, and welcome to our informational playground. This is Star Style, Be the Star You Are, brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are charity, and we are coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel, and boy, do we have a party for you today, because as promised, we have our world's leading rose expert, at least in my opinion, Michael Marriott, is with us today, all the way from England. He is the technical manager and the senior rosarian of David Austin Roses, as well as he is a a garden designer in his own right. He knows just about everything there is to know about roses, and we are going to chat with him now. Hello, Michael, and thank you so much for joining me on Star Style. Be the star you are. Hello, hello. Yes, great pleasure to be, be talking to you. Well, I am very excited because we've been uh, attempting to do this for a while now, and we finally have been able to do it. You are passionate about plants, and this is where you and I connected when we met at the Garden Writers Conference because I, too, I just I love, love, love uh, gardening, and I'm still a learning gardener when it comes to roses, but the David Austin roses are definitely my favorite. Now, right off the bat, you just told me that it has been snowing where you are, and so uh, I know here in California, we just had another, we just had a big snowstorm as well, and in different parts of the states, there's a lot of snow. How does snow and roses go together? Uh, no problem at all. The most roses are very tough, and so the English roses are very tough. I was looking around the garden today, and uh, some of the roses already had leaves on. And even though we've been, uh, I don't know, in centigrade, it's down to minus eleven. So I think in uh, in Fahrenheit, that's still I don't know twenty or something like that. And wow. the, the leaves absolutely not uh, not affected at all. They weren't they weren't scorched in any way. So yeah, roses are tough old, tough old things. They are. They are. You know, and that is the uh, I want to really bash the myth because when you talk to people about roses, people will always say, "Oh, you know, I love roses, but they're so hard to grow, and they're so picky, and they're so so work intensive." And I have always found it the other way. Could you enlighten us about roses? You just said they are, you know, they're tough. So what's the background on roses and why are they so tough? Well, the, the, the troubles of roses, there's a huge range of them. And, and some of them are very demanding and um, uh, need a lot of care and attention. But so the best thing to do is to ignore those. And if you've got any like that in your garden, it's just to dig them up and throw them away and then get some really good tough plants in there. Uh, tough roses in there and they're incredibly valuable plants so it's just a matter of choosing good varieties that are tough and uh, that are that's a winter hardy i don't expect in california winter hardiness is, is much of an issue uh, but certainly it is um it's a, it is over here and in parts of the states it will be too 
but uh, it's just a matter of choosing the, the varieties that, are, that cope well with your local climate. And then you've got fantastic plants that will be flowering for you know, several months of the year, five, six, seven months of the year, um, will have a, potentially a fantastic, beautiful flower, a wonderful fragrance, and, and be easy to look after as well. So they're, they're fantastically useful plants, very valuable, very garden-worthy plants. Well, and the David Austin roses are especially that way because they have been bred to be really tough and the combination of old roses with the wonderful fragrance, yet the, the uh, resistance to disease and the hardiness of new, um, new kinds of roses. Like I'm here near San Francisco, so we're not getting snow here and we only, you know, the cold maybe gets down to 20 five degrees or something but as in Lake Tahoe which is a few hours away they've had I don't know I think they got several feet of snow this last week and roses grow beautifully up there as well the roses in my garden now some of them some of your David Austin roses they're already blooming and they're blooming and most of the other ones um, they are they're leafing out and they've got buds on them and we're fortunate enough that if we prune in January we have like well now it's just March so we only have like a downtime of about a month and a half and basically if you keep cutting back we can have blooms about 10 months of the year which to me when you say a valuable plant i think it's a very valuable plant <laughs> well, because no, no other plant that potentially can give you so much really so why, why people are so um so picky about so funny about them i i never never work out because they are just uh, just the best plant out really uh and they, of course the fragrance is something that to marvel at as well because there's no other plant that has such a wide range of completely different fragrance types as the rose so you know just about every single rose that you smell will have a slightly different fragrance and they're just so wonderful as cut flowers bringing them in and they're you know they're a great well before we go and talk more about roses i want to talk just a little bit about your background because it's so fascinating you actually worked on a rubber uh, cocoa and oil palm estates in Papua New Guinea of all places and the Solomon Islands. What brought you there before you did your botanical research in England and then uh, received your degree? In, uh, well, when, I was at, when I was at uh, university, my professor was um, had done a lot of work overseas in the tropics and uh, he arranged for me to go and work for a company in Swaziland, which is, um, is uh, in southern Africa. And uh, based on that, uh, when I left university, I was apply, uh, able to apply back to the same company and say, uh, you know, I've got my degree now and uh, how would you like to be employ me? Uh, so they arranged for me to, um, to go out there. So I was out in the tropics for five years, started off in, on the island of Borneo. Uh, and then I say went to Solomon Islands and uh, Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea was uh, was very interesting because there I was responsible for setting up a new nursery and and surveying uh, a potential area for uh, planting with uh, rubber and oil palm. And uh, so I was sort of the the first person on the ground really, and that was uh, that was fascinating uh, event. So we're living in very isolated conditions and uh, having to drive through rivers and uh, all sorts of things like wow. that. And it, cope with uh, local people who weren't uh, all that 
How could friendly. You well, that's what I was going to just say. When I think of Papua New Guinea, I really still think of uh, of the natives and cannibalism and tribes that have never seen, you know, never seen the new world uh, that as we know it. Did you run into that as well? No, I wasn't quite that. Uh, that's mostly up in the mountains. Uh, so we were in the lowlands, more uh, closer to the um, to the coast. So yeah, they they, they were um, on the whole they were a lovely bunch of people. But uh, sometimes they uh, they demanded their rights, which are absolutely right. You know, they uh, they felt as though their their land was being taken, and uh, which wasn't uh, wasn't right at all. But uh, there was no fixed boundaries where one tribe owned one bit of land and another tribe owned another bit of land. So there was always arguments about who um, who owned that bit of land. <laughs> sometimes there was some sort of fairly nasty encounter. Uh, what encounters. a experience, though, for you. I mean, but what, what a difference in climates from England to, the, to going to the tropics. Did you have a hard time getting used to that in any way? No, I, I enjoyed it, actually. Uh, I mean, the, um, especially in... Um, uh, on the island of Borneo, um, the, I worked there on a cocoa estate, and uh, the main problem there was mosquitoes. Because I don't know if you know what a cocoa pod looks like. Looks like it's sort of like a. Uh, they, once they cut it in half to get the these seeds out, it ends up as two cups, and that that fills with rainwater very quickly. And then the mosquitoes just have an absolute delightful time uh, breeding in those. And you'd go out into the estate, and they would just be. As soon as you got out of the car, you'd just be attacked by a million mosquitoes, and so. Did you uh, have to worry about? Did you have to worry about malaria or you know the encephalitis from mosquitoes or any of the mosquito-borne diseases? Yeah, certainly malaria was around, so we had to take uh, anti-malarial pills all the time. Um, so yeah, but, it was a, it was a fascinating time. And, fascinating, uh, yeah, fascinating. Really, really, so really from good. going to. From going to the the oil palm and the rubber and these cocoa palms uh, to roses, tell us the, your journey of getting interested in roses. Because I don't know if there's anybody I I don't think I've ever met anyone who knows more about roses than you, and that that's what's so exciting because you're so excited about them, and I love that. Well, yes, when I came back um, came back to the UK after five years out there. Uh, just by chance, managed to get a job at um, a nursery near London uh, that worked, that grew uh, bedding plants and roses. And um, that wasn't a very satisfactory place. But from that, I was able to apply for the job because I had some experience in roses then. Uh, I was able to apply for the job as um, nursery manager at David Austin's. And that was uh, 1985. And uh, so, yeah, when I started there, it was um, sort of a tiny little nursery Hardly known. Just started to be known because um, the the rose that probably just about everybody knows, Graham Thomas, uh, had not long been introduced, and that was the rose that really changed the fortunes of uh, of the nursery. And uh, because before that, uh, you know, just a, a very small number of people knew about David Austin and his roses and his English roses. But once Graham Thomas had been introduced, the uh, Chelsea Flower Show. The press got hold of it, and everybody who went to uh, the Chelsea Flower Show wanted to see uh, this wonderful new rose and, and meet and see the David Austin stand and see his English roses. So I, I was very, very fortunate. I joined the nursery at exactly the right time uh, and uh, seen it through from um, when it was very small to now a, a really big international nursery. It, that is a, that's a wonderful story, and what a wonderful uh 
I guess that was great fortune, and they were so fortunate to get you. Well, when we talk about the roses growing the nursery, one of the big things is the bare root roses. And I was just wondering how you go about uh, growing these bare root, and then at what point do you dig them up and uh, send them off to the different places where you know they're going to be sold, whether it's the, the nurseries locally or around the world. How do you how do you manage that? Well, it's very much the same in the states. Um, so the rootstock um, is planted around now is when when the soil is right and weather conditions permit. The the one year old um, seedling rootstock is is planted in the field, and um, then during they grow and then during the summer they're they're budded. Uh, so budding is a sort of like grafting, uh, and uh, it's a horrible horrible job. I I've done it. One season, it practically killed me because you literally have to be bent over double to to reach these rootstocks, which are just above ground level. Uh, and it's a matter of just cutting a, a T-shaped uh, cut in the in the rootstock and then inserting the the bud eye uh, into the rootstock and then covering it with a little rubber patch. Uh, and then that joins out. Hopefully, that joins onto the rootstock. And then in the winter. You cut the top off that uh, rootstock, so you, all you're left with is the root and the bud of the variety that uh, you put on. And then the following year, that bud grows up and hopefully grows into a saleable plant during the during the summer. Uh, and then that uh, following autumn and winter, you dig it up and uh, send it on to the customer. So is that a two-year or three-year process or about a two-and-a-half-year process? It's two, two it's two years, basically. So two from, years. From planting the rootstock, um, or it's even, even less, 18 months, really. From planting the rootstock to digging it up is, is around 18 months. That's not long at all. But now, what is the rootstock that you use? Do you have a certain well, rootstock? Because they're, your roses, the David Austin roses, are disease-resistant. And so it's so important, just like you were saying, if you have these fussy roses, dig them up and throw them out. But David Austin roses aren't fussy at all. No, the, the rootstock is, is a way of just sort of growing the roses quickly. Uh, so it doesn't really have so much of an effect on how disease-resistant they are. Uh, it, just, it just determines how big the rose is going to, to get. Uh, over here, we use something called Laxa, uh, L-A-X-A, which is a bit like a dog rose. And in the States, you use uh, Dr. Huey, um, which is a, a big red climber. And uh, so that's something why you sometimes see quite a lot of red climbers around the place. But there's actually quite a movement in the States towards growing uh, roses on their own roots. So rather than uh, grafting them, uh, which is uh, wherever you are in the, in the world, it's a dreadful job. And it, getting sounds more bra- it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the States, you, you, use a, you, you have a, a trolley. You lie down on the trolley, and you actually sort of uh, work uh, flat, horizontal to the ground. Uh, so you're just sort of laid on your stomach all day long. And uh, that's probably equally horrible, too. So oh, it's a big move to growing them from cuttings uh, and growing them on their own roots. And uh, that's working very well, actually. And the roses that are that are grown on their own roots grow just as well. They um, do grow just as well. So is that something that David Austin is doing now as opposed to doing the, the budding? Or are yeah, they, we, you trying that both. quite a bit? Yeah, we do We do both. So we uh, there's a choice on most varieties whether you want to grow them on their own roots, uh, buy them on their own roots or buy them as grafted plants. 
And uh, yeah, those are the, the ones on their own routes are particularly um, popular up in the uh, colder climate. So if the um, if the um, top rows, the the uh, variety you grows you grow gets cut down to the ground by the frost by the cold, then hopefully uh, the bit underground will still be alive and that can grow away uh, the following spring. But if it's budded onto a rootstock, then it won't uh, be true. No, that's right. Yeah, it'll revert. You know, it's in. I've had a few roses uh, in the past do that when we've had temperatures. Well, we've had uh, where I am, I just go down to about 17, but it's very, that's very cold for here and stay that way for like, a, you know, a month. And interestingly, I've had some roses that have done that where they went, they just died off, but then they came back from the rootstock in that red, the red climbing roses that you were talking about. So that's interesting. So, okay, so there's um, the, the new roses that you do at David Austin, they are done like you know, in a old, a traditional kind of method, I'm always fascinated about the fragrance. Where is that rich, luscious fragrance coming from, and why is it so varied? How how are they? How do you make new roses? How do you design? You know, new um, new species or or just a new cultivar. What is the secret to that? Um. The secret is is just trying is in big numbers is 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 crossing lots and lots of uh, flowers and getting lots and lots of seeds and lots of seedlings and then hopefully out of those you know, very large number of seedlings you're going to find uh, a few that are have all the characteristics that you want uh, so obviously you have to try and choose your parents to a certain extent and try and choose parents that you think are going to be uh, successful. Uh, because some parents will cross very well and produce lots of interesting seedlings and others will cross. Uh, they might still produce lots of seedlings, but they're all very poor or you know, not attractive or no fragrance or very disease prone or whatever. So it's a matter of choosing the good parents and then crossing them in large numbers uh, and uh, and then hopefully uh, finding those very rare ones that uh, that have all the characteristics that we want. Because when, we, when we're looking for a good varieties to, uh, to introduce... Uh, we want we want everything. Uh, we don't. We're not just looking for uh, very disease resistant plants or or just um, very beautiful flowers, or whatever. We want a, a plant that has beautiful flower, fantastic fragrance, uh, is and is very healthy and repeat flowers very well. And trying to find those very very rare seedlings is um, is very difficult. It takes a, a lot of plants to find it. And I think that's why I love David Austin roses so much is because you do want everything, which is what everybody wants. We want everything. When I go into out in the garden, I want all of that. I want the fragrance. I want the repeat bloomers. The roses that just bloom once, it's just not worth it to me, you know, <laughs> even if the foliage is beautiful. I want lots and lots of blooms. And you, do, you don't want to have to spend all your time uh, working on diseases or any of that. So... Uh, how do you do you gather you said you gather seeds are those are those the um, the rose hips that are that's right yeah so we, I mean it starts off with uh, in um, we start off in about April the, all the parent plants are in greenhouses and they start flowering in April and so uh, when the flower is still at the bud stage you um, carefully pick off all the petals um, and then 
the the stamens are are, are cut off very carefully and uh, they're put into a little warm oven at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit and then the pollen is released and then that pollen can be used to put onto the flower of a of another variety that has had all the stamens removed and then uh, after a few months, four or five months, the hips will swell, they'll colour up and then they're harvested around sort of September, October time. Uh, the seeds are extracted out uh, and they're kept in the cold just above freezing for three months uh, and then they're, they're sown and very quickly they come up, they germinate and just now we're pricking out all the little seedlings uh, into their final position uh, so that they'll flower there. So they'll start flowering amazingly quickly. So by uh, towards the end of next month, um, they'll be flowering already. And then it's a matter of just going around and choosing those varieties that have beautiful flowers. Uh, then they're, they're budded onto the rootstock outside in the field and very quickly a lot of those will get very bad disease or just look um, awful for whatever reason. And then we gradually reduce the number of selections down from the initial about 150,000 seedlings, uh, we'll get down to these three or so that we introduce at the Chelsea Flower Show every year. Oh, it is definitely time intensive, very time intensive, and it's a huge process. Well, uh, Michael, we're going to just take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to get more into the pruning and some of the other things you're doing. DavidAustinRoses.com. And Michael Marriott's uh, website is michaelmarriottrosarian.wordpress.com. And uh, he also does gardens around the world. And we'll talk about some of his gardens as well. So, Michael, hold on. We'll be right back, everyone. You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are. And we're talking roses with Michael Marriott, the senior rosarian at David Austin Roses. Be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a Dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are. 
with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling Well, when we talk about me. power, I'll tell you, it really has to be a passion to if you want to propagate roses. Off the air, Michael Marriott, who is our guest today, and he is the senior rosarian at David Austin Roses, been there over 30 years. We were talking about the cost and what really goes into it. So, Michael, it's a very costly business to breed roses. Would you uh, mind explaining again, you know, because uh, kind of what goes into it behind the scenes that people don't see when they get that price tag of a rose bush or, you know, a plant? Yeah, so we're, we're, um, every year we grow uh, over 100,000 seedlings um, to try and get the three that uh, we introduce at the Chelsea Flower Show. And we have a permanent staff just in the breeding department of about 15 and about an acre of glass as well, which has all got to be heated and lit and all sorts of things like that. So we spend over a million pounds every year on um, on trying to introduce those new varieties. But it's, it's money well spent because, um, you know, we want to find the very best varieties. And of course, uh, if it wasn't for the uh, for the English the Austin roses, then uh, the the nursery the David Austin roses nursery would be you know just a a small nursery growing a, a range of already uh, introduced varieties by by other people. But because we've got our own very special range of varieties, then uh, then we've become very well known throughout the world, and the the roses are very well loved by uh, so many gardeners around the world. Well, and you travel around the world as well, not only speaking, you give lectures, you're on television, radio, doing all kinds of interviews, but you also design gardens. And you have designed uh, just some pretty spectacular gardens in, besides your own special garden that you do. What, uh, what influences you when you do some of these gardens? Um, the, the problem with a lot of... Um old established rose gardens is that the the roses are planted too far apart and so rather than um, a a beautiful mass of color you get you know a a rose planted too far apart with um, bare soil in between so when I'm designing my gardens I like to try to think of a a beautiful uh, well-planted perennial border like you see uh, in in the UK in somewhere like um, Sissinghurst or, or Wisley or somewhere like that and you can hardly see any soil at all. It's just a mass of flowers and, and plants. Uh, and I, I try and think of that when I'm designing my, my rose gardens, planting them uh, quite close together. Uh, not and too what, close is, what is close together, in your opinion? Because I'm like you. I don't want to, when I plant, I don't want to see any soil. I want, maybe that's the whole English garden feeling. I just want lush, romantic flowers everywhere. <laughs> just really, it, really yeah. cool. Well, it depends. The distance you plant apart departs d- depends so much on on the varieties and what climate you're in. But uh, as a very rough rule for for a lot of the uh, Austin roses, you might want to plant uh, two foot, two foot six apart, or something like that. So they'll join together to form one large plant, uh, and then maybe a little bit. Uh, that's for between plants of the same variety, and maybe between plants of neighbouring variety a bit further apart. So. Um, they, they'll, they'll just sort of just about join up, but you can still squeeze in between to do your deadheading and weeding and things like that. So ideally, if you plant, if you, if you plant them in groups, it depends how big your border is. 
Uh, I always like, if there's room, try and plant them in, in groups, uh, very significant size groups of one variety, uh, and plant them rows quite closely together so that um, they grow together to form one large shrub rather than see them as a number of individuals. You know, I think this is probably one of the issues that uh, people have had in the past is that it was all people were told, you know, to plant their roses five to six feet apart because they needed to breathe. And so that probably was a, uh, a big deterrent to having lush gardens because your roses were too far apart. Absolutely. And it's, uh, so many uh, rules in rose growing is just left over from the time when people grew them for the show bench. Uh, and there you had to, and a lot of the varieties then were very susceptible to disease and uh, and very poor, and you wanted to get around each of your plants so that you could give it the maximum amount of space and, and, and uh, give it every care possible. But of course nowadays we, we grow most of our roses in the garden just for sheer enjoyment. We don't want to cut them for the show bench. We, you know, we might want to cut a few to bring into the house to make arrangements. But basically, they're out there in the garden to just pr produce a, a beautiful effect. Uh, and so, yes, we just want to um, plant them quite closely together. And then that's best for the soil because the more that the soil is exposed to the elements, to the strong sun and and um, strong rain and things like that, the more it will suffer. So the more it's protected from the elements, the happier the soil will be and the happier the soil will be. Uh, the so happier the soil is, then the happier the uh, any plants that are planted in there will be as well. And happy soil is something that you are very, very uh, passionate about because you really believe in sound soil management. What kind of fertilizing food do David Austin roses enjoy or flourish with? Uh, well, the important or thing compost. is... compost. Yeah, that's right. Lots of it, The most important thing is lots of organic matter. And so the most important thing you do before planting a rose is to, um, is to incorporate a generous amount of really well-rotted organic matter into the soil down to a depth of sort of 12, 15 inches, something like that, uh, and then keep the soil really well mulched all the time, uh, again, with sort of fairly well-rotted stuff. Uh, and the, the, all the worms and all the other microorganisms will incorporate that into the soil uh, and encourage a really lively soil. And so the, 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 the better quality of the soil, uh, the happier any plants will be growing in there. And uh, then you, may, you need to probably give a bit of fertilizer on top of that, but you have to be careful not to give too much, because actually if you add too much fertilizer, uh, it can do more harm than good. So well, you usually uh, just get more leaves and not as many flowers, I think, with too much fertilizer as well. But uh, I was wondering, right now is bare root season. People are planting their David Austin bare root. When they dig the hole, how big of a hole should they dig? Uh, do they put the, the organic matter in the hole around the roots? Do they buy good soil? Uh, do they, you know, do they add any acidic, you know, like perhaps um, the fallen leaves from redwood trees or something like that? What do, what do you suggest? Well, it depends so much on your soil type. So uh, ideally, roses like a, a, a good quality loam, so not too sandy and not too clay. So you have to sort of adjust what you do according to what soil type you have. But whatever soil type you do, just you incorporate uh, plenty of uh, well-rotted organic matter into the soil and down to a depth. Uh, so dig a hole about 
um, 15 inches across, 15 inches deep, uh, and uh, dig that out, uh, mix that soil, excavated soil with the organic matter, and then uh, you can put it back into the hole, uh, just dig a little planting hole ready for the rose. Make sure that the, uh, the bud union is just below ground level, uh, not above ground level, just below ground level, uh, and then firm it in well. And you often see when uh, uh, diagrams how to plant roses, and you sort of have to do this complicated thing of putting a, a cone at the bottom of the, a cone of um, soil at the bottom of the right. hole. Right, which is absolute you don't nonsense. Need to, you don't need to do that, right? <laughs> well, it's just absolute nonsense. So <laughs> you just dig a hole and um, and fill it back up again with, um, put your rose in, fill it back up the soil, and there you are. The important thing to do is to <clears throat> maybe leave a bit of a, a depression around the top so when you do water it in very well, uh, then the water doesn't uh, run everywhere, so it just stays around the um, around the rows. Well, and I think what's very important that you said is to plant the bud union below ground level. Yeah, yeah, and if I, you do that, then you don't get any um, wind rock at all. Uh, and if you do live in a cold winter area, then uh, uh, that uh, the, the the base of the shoots will be protected from the hard frost. But I think in, in San Francisco, you're probably what? Are you zone eight or? or, or? Um, it's it's uh, eight and eight or nine, depending on where you are in the area. Because yeah, so, San Francisco can, you know, can actually go even lower. But it just depends. The, it's called the Bay Area, and it's all different microclimates. Yeah. So um, the most, just about all Austin roses are hardy to zone five. So zone five. And then a few of them are hardy to zone four even. So that's, you know, that's seriously cold, that is. <laughs> so I was reading that Olivia Rose Austin, that rose, um, is has been considered maybe one of the best roses that has been bred. What do you think makes that the, you know, why is it called one of the best roses that has been bred? I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. I love just the pink, the pink blooms and the smell, the flowers, you know, those gorgeous cupped rosettes. But uh, is there something that makes, you know, that really stands out for you when you're choosing you know, one of your best? Uh, the, the thing that really is outstanding about, well, there's two things that are outstanding about it. One is the fact that it's very, very healthy. Uh, and so um, just doesn't seem to suffer from any diseases at all, very, very little. And the other thing is it repeats so quickly. So it starts flowering very, very early in the season. Uh, over here in the UK, most roses start flowering around the middle or second half of June. But uh, Olivia Rose Austin is already flowering uh, at the end of May or right at the beginning of June. So a good two or three weeks earlier than most others. And then it repeats really quickly. So uh, over here again in the UK, we were lucky to get um, two flushes of flowers, really. But there it might get three or even four flushes of flower in the season. But with you in, in around um, San Francisco, I mean, that'll just be flush after flush after flush, I should think. I, I would think so. And what about uh, deadheading or pruning back? What do you recommend for the roses? I know you, yeah, get, so you gave seminars. You give seminars in pruning. So... <laughs> When they're blooming and the flowers have are spent, what do you recommend? Let's start there, and then we'll talk about the hard pruning. Yeah, certainly um, deadheading is very important. Um, some varieties tend to set hips if they're not deadheaded, and so that's crucial with those. Uh, but even if they don't set hips, it's just sort of good to tidy them up. And I view just cutting back down to the first uh, full leaf, 
uh, with either five or seven leaflets, uh, or cut them back maybe a bit more if you sort of they're growing a bit too strongly, and you can cut them back you know a good foot or eighteen inches uh, back a bit harder, and that'll encourage some good strong growth to come out of the uh, plant again. And now let's talk about pruning in the winter months. So. Here in California, we usually prune in, you know, January, uh, yeah, January, early February. I think maybe in England you do it in December, or do you do it in January as well? Yeah, we do it in January. So that's the first thing that uh, that gets done um, at the nursery when they come back after the Christmas break is to go straight into the garden and start the pruning. Uh, I, uh, I often do it over the Christmas break in my own garden. Uh, I always think it's a nice uh, nice thing to do in the garden. There's not much else to do uh, when it's so cold and wet here. Uh, not much else to do in the garden. And, you know, when, just a good good time to get out into the garden and get some fresh air and get a bit of activity going uh, and, and, and prune all the roses. Uh, but so, yeah, any time between before the end of February, I, I would say in England, uh, crucial to try and get it done if possible before the end of February. Uh, because if you leave it any longer, and especially in sort of California, then the roses are already starting to grow very significantly. You'll have long shoots on them. And if you prune after that, then you're cutting off all those beautiful long shoots and you're wasting the plant's energy. So um, so cut them, prune them in the depths of the winter, the coldest months, uh, and uh, then, uh, then they'll, they'll grow away strongly. And that's the best advice is is wherever you are in the world is to prune them in the coldest months. For those of you just joining us, we are speaking to uh, Michael Marriott, who is the chief rosarian at David Austin Roses. And he is also a garden expert and designer on his own right. DavidAustinRoses.com is where you can find all these beautiful, beautiful roses that uh, you will fall in love with, that I have fallen in love with over time. And then, of course, uh, you can find Michael Michael Marriott. Sorry about that. So, uh, Michael, you started to talk about some more um, pruning. So you do it uh, over Christmas. I think that's a great idea. When I think whenever it's cold to go ahead and, and do that. But what's the best way to actually prune? I know you want to have, you know, some really sharp tools, loppers, saw, gloves. How much do you prune back? The general rule is down to about halfway. And the trouble with a lot of people is they're scared to prune their roses. They think they're going to kill them off or spoil them. And they ended up, end up by only pruning them a little bit. So um, really, it's best to be... Not vicious of them, but you know, cut them significantly back. So I always think of a very good general rule is about halfway, but somewhere between a third and two thirds, according to how much how tall you want that plant to do in that position. So you can adjust it. So in one place you might want a variety to grow a little bit taller, so don't prune it so hard. But in another place you might want it to grow a bit shorter. So prune it a little bit harder, and that'll encourage it to, to stay shorter. So it's very easy just to adjust the height according to what you want it to do in that position. Um, and, and it's literally half, you know, it's literally down to half. So if it, it's, say, growing to six feet in your garden, then cut it down to three foot or even two foot or something like that. And then the other thing to remember, don't, don't worry, again, a lot of... Um, uh, advice and rose books and uh, on websites and things like that you're looking for the outward pointed bud you're cutting at an angle you're cutting just above the bud 
I never worry about that when I'm pruning. I, I'm just thinking more about uh, cutting it down uh, to about halfway, as I say, and then cutting it in a sort of rounded way. So don't cut it just straight across. Uh, try and make a nice rounded bush out of it, and that encourages more flowers uh, lower down. Uh, and uh, and it's very quick and easy there. So really don't worry about all those rules and regulations it tells you about in the book. Uh, roses are incredibly forgiving plants, and um, you, you can't, you know, really, you can't really go wrong uh, much uh, with pruning. The other important thing with, with roses, once they've been in the ground uh, for a few years, then the older stems start to get a bit old and tired. So identify those old stems which are usually gone brown and got bark around them cut those right out at the ground level and that'll encourage new young stems from the base uh, and uh, the plant then will uh, the rose then will be healthier and it'll flower more freely and it'll have better quality blooms as well so uh, this is what i love about you michael is i love that you don't have any rules it's like just go out enjoy yourself you know cut the roses down they're going to be fine i remember when you were on our show before you were talking about um deadheading and how people are always so afraid you know that they have to cut exactly down to the five or the seven and right above you know the knob or whatever and you said hey you could even just pinch it off whatever works (laughs) and i think that's a great thing to know is People take it much too seriously. Have a little bit more fun with your roses, and they'll have more fun with you. Well, Michael's website, michaelmarriottrosarian.wordpress.com. You can also find him on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Michael Rosarian. So what do you think is going to be for this year? Do you have any idea of what uh, what you're looking for in a new rose? Um. It's really always, I mean, the most important thing that we're looking for in new roses is, 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 is it a beautiful plant? And uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of new plants, not just roses, but new plants that are introduced, are just introduced on the base of novelty. And uh, novelty uh, doesn't, it usually means uh, not a beautiful plant. Uh, and what we want in our gardens, I think, always is beauty, not just something that looks different that is shorter or taller or, you know, flowers more freely. It's just we want beauty in our garden, and that's what we're looking for in our English roses all the time is is uh, beautiful plants, and that usually encompasses, you know, beautiful individual flower and a lovely fragrance and just the way that the whole bush is, uh, is held together. Uh, it's, it's the look of the whole bush, not just the individual flower, which is crucial. How important is the Chelsea uh, Flower Show for you when you are introducing those three new plants? Um, it is important. Um, in the olden days, it used to be that you know we used to have great launches and very important people, very great personalities on the stand, and you know had a lot of photographers along and got a lot of publicity out of it. But these days, uh, less and less so. So yeah, Chelsea Flower Show for us is still absolutely crucial. Um, and on the on the press day and the royal day, then we get all the world's um, press come along, and all the um, uh, all the top uh, horticulturalists from around the world come along to see what we're doing, uh, and that's absolutely crucial. And then, of course, in the subsequent days, uh, we have um, or it's, tens of thousands of people come along and, and have a look at our stand, where we have one of the biggest stands at Chelsea, and it's one of the best known ones, one of the best loved ones. And a lot of people make a, when they come to Chelsea, it's one of the must 
must look at stands uh, at the Chelsea Flower Show, and uh, they uh, usually very very crowded. People wanting to look round, and they have to do interviews and things like that. And it's it's great. I mean, the Chelsea Flower Show. If you ever get a chance to go to the Chelsea Flower Show, it is a, a wonderful experience. It is. Uh, uh, it sounds fun. like a pilgrimage. It sounds like I need to make a pilgrimage to that. You know, because I love Sissinghurst, and I mean, I love all these English gardens, and uh, a pilgrimage to, and go and see your stand at the at the Chelsea Flower Show would be amazing. Well, I want to let you get going because it is in England right now. It's like close to one in the morning and you must be very tired. You've been, <laughs> you've been working uh, all this time and, and giving lectures. So thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to be here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I We just love the David Austin Roses. I think that they are just by far the most spectacular. And uh, everyone can understand why, because you do look for all that beauty, the fragrance, the, the form, you know, and it, they're just a fantastic fantastic rose so davidaustinroses.com is the website to check out all the different beautiful english roses michael marriott's website michaelmarriottrosarian.wordpress.com and instagram.com forward slash michael rosarian and enjoy your cottage it sounds like you are really having a good time bringing that up that garden up to speed and what a beautiful garden you've created there well, thanks very much. Yeah, having uh, a lot of fun. So I'm taking the day off tomorrow, so I'm going to have a lot of fun in the garden, uh, doing some gardening here. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing more fun to me than gardening either. So enjoy. Well, Michael Marriott, thank you so much for being here on Star Style. Be the star you are. Again, davidaustinroses.com. And we will be in touch. Happy, Wait. Happy rose gardening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, we'll be right back after this short break, so don't go away. We're going to do a quick jaunt in the jungle. I'm Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. Be right back. Stay with me. Be the star you are. The star you are. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. Bethestarur.org. Dare to care. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. 
Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is calling. Well, I am back, and you heard how Michael Marriott started his career in the jungle. So I thought we would take a jaunt in the jungle. I was in the jungles of Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Cambodia. And although it wasn't Borneo or Papua New Guinea, it was uh, very interesting because completely covered by tangles of roots and vines, it is only in recent years that many of the ancient grandiose brick and sandstone temples were uh, rediscovered in Cambodia. And these monumental structures, they were built on top of one another for over seven centuries as capitals of the Khmer Empire, and they have survived the passage of time. The jungle did swallow up a lot of cities and palaces. Uh, Anything that was constructed by wood, it left only skeletal remains and Lots of inquisitive monkeys, and those monkeys are still there. The bustling, colorful life of the Anger civilization has to be left to the imagination and to the research of historians and explorers and archaeologists. I have to say that a couple of times. And, of course, I was very lucky to be there. If you ever watched the 1991 film Laura Croft, Raider, you glimpse the unexcavated and unrestored temple of Ta Prom, which has been completely reclaimed by the jungle and is now being reclaimed by modern civilization. These immense trees, they grow like magic out of stone walls and through the roofs. The guide that was with us told us that visitors were allowed to explore these ruins only in the last couple of years because the area was occupied by cobras, many as long as 20 feet. And we're talking about families of cobras, nests of cobras, kind of like uh you know, in Raiders of the Lost Ark or, you know, Indiana Jones. So to deter these venomous serpents from continuing to nest, they've planted lemongrass around the perimeter, and it's keeping the poisonous snakes away. Now, Southeast Asia is uncomfortably hot and humid, in my opinion. The jungles are wild and untamed. The flora is bright, it's beautiful, and it's bizarre. There's palm, coconut, banana, mango, papaya, jackfruit, passion fruit, breadfruit plantations. The landscape is just filled everywhere, and it's never-ending fields of green rice paddies. Most villagers don't have running water nor do they have indoor plumbing. Interestingly, the banana groves serve as their toilets. And nothing is wasted there. Every part of a plant is used for food, for shelter, fire, clothing, furniture, and other life necessities. Now, both in Vietnam and Cambodia, water lilies and lotus flowers, they grow absolutely magnificently in the waterways. And although two are often confused, water lilies have pads and flowers that float on the surface of the water, while the lotus um, leaves, they rise a foot to several feet above water. Now, the various colors of the lotus flower retell tales culturally revered. And because lotus flowers grow in murky water, an unfurled white lotus refers to the purity of body, mind, and spirit. And a red lotus boasts of love and compassion. And the favorite is the pink lotus. And that tells the story of Buddha and the many legends that are surrounding him. Purple represents mysticism, royalty, and spirituality. Now, lotus flowers are gathered and made into spectacular art pieces, delivering the spirit of enlightenment and good fortune to those who embrace the grace and beauty. 
There's also betel nut and the uh, rika nut that are important symbols of love and marriage in Vietnam. And it's very interesting because a groom's parent will begin a conversation with the potential bride's parent by offering the arena nut to chew. And now in Vietnamese weddings, the leaves and juices are used in the ceremonies. And betel nut is a stimulant, and it is um, a mind-altering substance. It's also known as the scourge of Asia because it causes oral cancer. Now, rich in protein, calcium, potassium, iron, and other nutrients, the leathery, prickly jackfruit is considered to be a miracle food with the potential to supply an entire family a complete meal. It's grown in every garden. Mangoes are actually the main staple of daily diets, and it's considered one of the most important fruits for improved wellness. And, of course, we know they're low in calories, and they're filled with vitamin C, A, B6, beta carotene. And these are all important elements to fighting cancer and regulating diabetes, which aids in better eyesight and digestion and clear skin. Now, there were golden shower trees, which have those beautiful... Uh, yellow flowers that bring a light and cheerfulness to Pathways Hills. And they were, uh, they were really seen in cemeteries. But one of the most beautiful prickly plants that I witnessed was called the Crown of Thorns. It's an, actually an evergreen cactus. It's in that Euphorbia millie family, and it blooms year-round in hot and sunny locations. It doesn't require much water at all. It has these fantastic scarlet, pink, yellow, white, or salmon color bracts. And it grows to three feet, uh, but it has these one-inch spiky thorns. Now, people can uh, grow it as a house plant, but, you know, usually it is grown outdoors. Now, the thing that amazed me was in the Mekong Delta, the floating villages and the traditional houses on stilts that lined the banks with residents. They're, the residents uh, live on these, like, old boats, and They might survive by earning their living by bringing food and different things, baskets, mats, um, from things that are made in the river or fruits or vegetables that have um, been on their farms. And there's floating hyacinths everywhere. I would think that they would, you know, entangle the boats, but they really haven't. I didn't encounter a tiger while I was there, but I really did uh, have a lot of, of jungle fever. Well, this is our show for today. I hope you really enjoyed everything about roses. Don't forget to check out David Austin roses. I heartily endorse them. I love them so much. I have several planted in my garden, and Michael Marriott is just a um, you know is just a, a joy to get to know and to be a speaker. So if you want him to come and lecture anywhere, make sure to contact him. Thanks for joining me every Wednesday. And check out my book, Growing with the Goddess Gardener. You can go to CynthiaBryan.com forward slash books, and you can also buy it there. If you want to make a donation to Be The Star You Are, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. A shout out to Michael Verbrugge, who is going to be sponsoring our Moraga Fair. And also make sure to check out BeTheStarYouAre.org because we have an A's versus Angels baseball game coming up that we'd love you to be there. We are going to be the nonprofit of the night. So until we get together again next week, remember that love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. I am Cynthia Bryan for Star Style, thanking you and encouraging you to go into the garden, find some peace, and enjoy the beauty. Have a wonderful week. Dream, create, inspire, make a difference. 
and we'll be together next Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. Thanks for joining me. Be the star you are, the star you are, be the star you are, you are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.